If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to old school mission here this morning. So if you um, are new to mission for about the first two years, three years, um, we did um, kind of what we call a reverse worship experience. It's, it's a personal preference still to this day of, of doing a lot of the preaching and teaching at the beginning and then responding through communion, through giving, through singing, because I think it's, it's in knowing the truth that we know why we should respond, all right? And so this morning, we're still going to sing and all that sort of stuff, uh, but it's going to be in a response to what we're going to look at here today, all right? So we're looking at a sermon series that we're called In Christ Alone, The Life and Church That Christ Builds that there is something that Jesus does inside of his sovereignly chosen people. Those whom Jesus has saved, he has not just saved them in order to do something to them in the future, but Jesus has saved them in order to do something in them in the presence. That there is a life to be lived that is reflective of who they are in Christ. And so Paul is spent in the, the book of Ephesians... There was this guy named Paul. He was a non-Christian. Um, he was trying to kill Christians, persecute Christians. Jesus saves him. Then he becomes a pastor, a church planter, all these sorts of things. And he's writing to this church in Ephesus, which he, he loves. Because he knows what, what's going to happen is, is a lot of times they're going to forget who they are. And if they forget who they are, then that is going to dictate a lot of how they live. And so he's going to tell them the first three chapters, this is who you are in Jesus now, in lieu of this, the fruit of your identity is the last three chapters, and, and this is how you're going to live. So today, in the next several weeks, we're going to be breaking down a lot of different things. I'm actually going to be tossing up a ball today. In about three weeks, in about a month or so, Pastor Justin will kind of do part two to this sermon. Um, and then in the fall, we will actually hit this topic again whenever we're talking about parents uh, not provoking your child to anger. So today we're going to look at this idea of, of what does it mean to be angry in Christ? I know that that can be a weird title, um, but what does it mean to have anger or be angry or anger in Christ? All right? So I'm going to try to do this without raising my voice, and most of you know that that's tough for me, um, because sometimes passion can be perceived as anger, all right? Um, but I, I really don't want to be perceived as, as angry at all today, um, but with no less any passion, all right? So let's dive into this. Um, how many of you guys saw the first Avengers movie? Anybody see the first Avengers movie? All right. Um, if you don't know anything about the Avengers, there's a one Avenger superhero, and his name is the Incredible Hulk. Now, in real life, his name is Dr. Eric Banner. All right, or Dr. Banner, and uh, Eric Banner was the guy that played in the movie, but Dr. Banner is the character that he is normally. He's a scientist, he's really smart, all these sorts of things, and he did some experiments and, and, and these sorts of things, and so what happens is, is whenever the brother gets angry, then he turns into this alter ego called the Incredible Hulk, all right? So think Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of experience, well, in the first Avengers movie, if you did see it, there's this great scene when all of New York City is being, of course, destroyed 
all right? Everything's being blown up. It's just one blow-up scene after another, and all of these aliens are coming, and they're attacking New York City, and in the middle of one of the main streets inside of New York, there stands Captain America, there stands Thor, there stands Iron Man, and, and all of these characters that are part of the Avengers Marvel Universe. Well, all of a sudden, Dr. Banner shows up on her motorcycle. He doesn't show up as the Incredible Hulk, and there are all of these aliens that are attacking New York City. And Captain America, the leader of the Avengers, he goes up to Dr. Banner and he says, um, Dr. Banner, I, I think it's time that you become angry. And then Dr. Banner smirks, he smirks back at Captain America and says, here's my secret, is I'm always angry. I'm always angry. And then immediately he goes from wearing like normal clothes to always being in purple pants. Like if you've ever seen Incredible Hulk, it makes no sense. But that's what happens to the brother every time. All right, And he, with one punch, destroys an alien as big as this building. But the secret was, what? That he is always angry. He's, he's always angry. Now, I, I, I'm convinced this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, is that, that Dr. Boehner's secret is not just his secret, but I believe that Dr. Boehner's secret is actually everyone's secret in this room. Is that we are always angry. And the thing is, we live in a very angry culture. A few years ago when there was the election, who elected Donald Trump? It's been said that this was the stereotype. Middle-aged, which I'm now one of, angry white men. If you follow Twitter, if you look on social media, if you follow the news, what you will quickly realize is that people are angry. If you drive down Scottsville Road, you will quickly realize that people are angry. I mean, I just read an article, what, last week there was a, a man that I think like brutally either murdered or beat up somebody um, because of road rage. Right? I mean, these, this sort of mentality is, is constantly happening. And, and here's the thing, it's not often addressed. It's because it has become an acceptable or respectable sin, as Jerry Bridges will call it. That we're all doing it, and so it's got to be okay. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you this morning. For the last several weeks, if you haven't noticed, I've been quoting a book almost every week called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridgers, Bridges. If you have not read it, you should read the book. So there will be some things that are just going to naturally come out of me while I'm preaching that, that I don't want to plagiarize, but I, I know that they've been influenced by that book. What's interesting is inside of that book, out of all of these respectable and acceptable sins that you and I have fallen and accustomed to, in the book there are two chapters on anger, when he usually only dedicates one chapter to the rest of the issues. And so in this, it's a very real problem. It is a very real issue, this idea of being angry. 
This last week, in the last seven days, in preparation for this sermon, I have tried to keep a personal in my head record of every time I've gotten angry. I'm very ashamed of the results. I would encourage you this week, take seven days, and every time you feel yourself getting, we like to call it, this is Christian, it's a Christian cuss word, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. Right? Every time that you feel that angst, that stress, that anger, in the next seven days, take notice of it. I think that you will see that we are both sinners. Paul is getting, again, very practical in this idea that if we are followers of Jesus, that there should be this maturity that is taking place in us. If you truly are a Christian, then there should be this pursuit of Christ's likeness. And so in that, Paul is going to address these specific things. Look in verse 25 in the book of Ephesians Chapter 4, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that verse this morning. We've already talked some about language a few weeks ago. We've got several sermons coming up again that are going to also address this. But here's what I want to say to you. We have got to stop pretending with each other. That this is what Paul's getting at. That we're members here of the same church. Quit faking it until you make it. Quit lying. Quit. We live these kind of exaggerated lives, which are another way of saying exaggerated lies, because we really don't want each other to find out what we're all up into. And so we will come up with excuses. We will pace, uh, just kind of pose a, a, a false view of our lives and how we're existing in each other. And I want you to know that this is not acceptable to God. Therefore, it should not be acceptable to us. As we will often say here at Mission, whatever you are going through, you need to understand that I'm not okay and that you're not okay. None of us are okay in this room. We are all messed up people. And yet the gospel compels us to realize and to be forthcoming, man, this is, how I'm, this is what I'm into. This is what I'm messed up into. And so it's, it's okay for you not to be okay at Mission Church. But I want you to know this. The gospel is not going to allow you to stay not okay. It's going to be pushing us toward, again, righteousness about Christ-likeness of wanting to reflect the person and work of Jesus in our lives. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm begging you to stop the pretending. We have something that we're trying to teach one of our critters at our house, and that is the reality of accepting responsibility. Parents, you'll get this. Um, yesterday we had a situation in our vehicle. We were driving down to Nashville and the critter in the back seat was looking at her mama's phone and all of a sudden the phone comes flinging to the front of the vehicle. I did not slam on my brakes. Uh, as far as I know, smartphones are really smart but they can't grow arms and legs. They can't jump out of your hand. And so we looked at the critter in the back seat and said, um, Critter A, did you just throw your phone? Did you just throw your mama's phone up here? Well, no. It just jumped out of my hands.
If, if your phone has arms and legs, it's either a demon-possessed or a transformer. Get it out. All right? So we had this conversation. It was quick. It wasn't a, a jolting conversation, but it was like, hey, because don't you hate to be around friends and family members who can't accept responsibility for whatever junk is going on in their lives? It is so frustrating. We would be better off, brothers and sisters, to just simply admit that when asked, instead of trying to cover up or justify or try to say, it's not as bad as it, I, I, I'm not, well, I'm, I'm not as doing it as often as I used to or this or that, but no, just to simply say, oh yeah, I blew it. Because here's what happens. When you begin to justify and over-excuse and not accept responsibility for whatever wrong you're doing, when you're not accepting responsibility, it's very noticeable by everyone around you, and they actually walk away having more uh, shade cast toward you than if you would have just said, I did it. Because when you'll just say, everybody get this, when you'll just say, I messed up, I did it, that person immediately, instead of casting shade and being kind of worried about you, and, and if you're ever telling the truth, guess what they'll immediately do? The exact opposite. They will show you respect. They'll say, man, that, that took some guts for that person to just go ahead and say, man, I messed up. I accept responsibility. Everybody noticed that before? So stop the lying. Just start telling the truth. Stop the pretending. Be forthcoming. All right, so Paul is going to address that, and then he's going to go into the section where we're going to kind of cling to today. In verse 26, Paul is going to say this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Isn't it interesting here that Paul is going to say, be angry. In this passage of scripture, Paul is making the assumption that guess what, even believers, because who's he writing to? He's writing to the church here. He's writing to Christians, and he is going to say to them, be angry. We would expect him to say, do not be angry. All right? And, and there are definitely some issues in regards to that. Even, and I think in the book of Colossians, one of the other Paul's letters, he says, like, cast off anger and malice and deceit and jealousness and all, all, all of those sorts of things. But in this passage, Paul is going to say, be angry. It's a reflection or a quoting of actually Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, that kind of uh, says the exact same thing. So it's interesting for us to read this scripture in this passage where Paul is not going to just assume that we're angry, but he's going to tell us, it's going to command us to be angry. Now, the, the issue here that Paul is going to address here later on in chapter 4 and even when we get to chapter 5 is, is that there are really two different types of anger. The first type, I'm just going to just drive by very quickly, is, is the right kind of anger. I believe it's John Stott that says that uh, one of the problems in, a, in modern Christianity is actually that we're not angry enough. That there is a righteous anger. That there are things that we need to be angry about. What is righteous anger? Well, the easiest way to understand this, that even our, our elementary schools can get this, is this, is that being angry 
is being angry at what angers God. See, a lot of times we don't say things like, well, God is love. Yes, he is, but God is also wrathful. What's another name for wrath? Is that God is angry. And probably the, the most famous American sermon ever written was by a guy named Jonathan Edwards who says that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, we then have to ask the question, what makes our God angry? Well, several things. Any attack against God's character makes God angry because it tries to paint a picture of him that does not exist. Therefore, God's justice, because it is who he is, it's, it's not that he is just wrathful, just angry, but that is a part of his personality, is a part of his character, it is a part of his attributes. And so when anyone is attacking God's very character, we can see over and over and over again what God does when you come against him, right? From the very beginning, you're removed from the garden. Years later, here comes a flood, right? A lot of the, um, if you've read many of the Psalms, right, it talks about the, the wrath of God just burning against disobedience. If you ever read what are called the, the major and minor prophets, that's typically in the Old Testament, the last half of the Old Testament. You've got these major prophets, which are really long books, minor prophets, which are really short books, and guess what they are all about? If you keep disobeying God, then his wrath, his anger, his righteous wrath, his righteous anger is going to come against you. You're going to be destroyed. And people often say, well, Jesus, he wasn't angry. It's not true. We see Jesus on several different occasions getting angry, one, a lot with the Pharisees. Remember Jesus turning over the tables inside of the temple. Why? Because they of two things. One, they were disgracing the house of God, but also because of the injustice that was taking place as these, these money changers were really prying on taking advantage of the poor people. We see this over and over again where, where, where Jesus himself becomes angry. All right? I don't think that Jesus looked at... at at the Pharisees and would get upset at them and just say, you know, you, you brood of vipers. You make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Right? I mean, it tells us that Jesus got a whip and ran people out of the temple because of one, the character assassination of God, but also the injustice against the poor and the oppressed. These are things that make God angry. So they should make us angry. When there is a character assassination against our God, that should make us upset. When we see injustice inside of the world, when we see uh, you know, sex trafficking, when we see um, racism taking place, when we see abortion taking place, and let me say something about abortion real quick. When we as believers say that we are, are against abortion, um, we, we want to make sure that when we say things like we're pro-life, that we're pro-life from conception to death, not just the beginning stages but all of life. And so if there's injustice that is happening there, then that should make us upset. 
But what's interesting about righteous anger, it isn't this incredible Hulk, Hulk angry mentality. It is an emotion that can swell up that is based on facts. Notice that when we see Jesus getting upset, that it is, it is an anger that is directed toward God's character being, again, assassinated. It is not focused on the person that is angry. Excuse me, it's, it's not posting on, on the person that is angry, but, it, but it, is, it is poised toward the reaching out to wanting to help someone else who's being taken advantage of. So righteous anger at its very core is God-focused and others-focused. And that's one of the key differences between righteous anger and what we'll get to in a minute, which is unrighteous anger. A righteous Angry person is not driven by emotions. They are driven by facts. All right? It is that there's a kid being bullied, right? Instead of that kid that is being bullied retaliating by throwing punches, it's, it's the superstar football player that comes running in, Tim Tebow, and lays out the bully. Right? And then, like, dust up the kid and then, like, edifies the kid greater than himself. That's the picture of, in a very elementary form, of, of what it means to have, again, just this righteous anger. If evil and justice attacks God and attacks God's causes, then God becomes angry, and therefore it should make us angry as well. See, true anger, righteous anger, godly anger, is marked by love. It is marked by deep grief. But it is never passive. It always leads to action. This is what we see in Jesus. This is what we see in God. See, brothers and sisters, if you've never been angry at anything, you have never loved anything. Never. There are things that should get us as believers upset. But to say something like, man, we are not, we, are, that we should say things like we are pro-life, right? And that is righteous anger that we should want to stop abortions. But it becomes unrighteous anger if we go bomb, uh, bomb the abortion clinic. There's an issue there. Then it becomes unrighteous. That's not the way in which Jesus is going to become angry. And again, it's not driven by this just necessarily red face yelling and screaming, but it's, it's driven by love. It is driven by action. I'm telling you, you break into my house tonight, you better be packing because I'm going to lay you out. And if you get me, I want you to know you're going to show back up to your clan back at your house and they'll be like, what kind of fight did you get into? Because I will bite you pinch you, punch you, pull your hair, shoot at you, chase after you. You're going to have to beat me. Why? Because I love my wife and my kids. I lay down my life for my wife and my kids. I mean, could you imagine, gentlemen, you're laying in your bed at night, somebody's breaking in, and you go, honey, Laura, get up. <laughs> right? How ridiculous. Hey, 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 I hear a noise. Hey, Ava, go check that out. <laughs> right? 
It's, it's ridiculous. No, I mean, it's, it's righteous anger. It's protection. Because I love them, I'm angry at you. And I will do whatever it takes to stop you. Picture of righteous anger. But where we're going to spend the rest of our time here today is not talking about righteous anger. It's talking about the respectable, and I mean that sarcastically, and acceptable idea of sinful angry. Paul's going to tell us again, be angry. So he's going, to, he's going to implore to you, hey brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, there are things that you need to be angry about. And if only voting against these things, that is not cutting it here. We're talking about laying down your life for the sake of God's character and the sake of the justice that's taking place on the planet as, as just a fruit of the gospel that has been placed inside of us. However, Paul also knows and realizes, he's going to talk about several times here, is that there's not just righteous anger, but that there is this sinful anger. In the original language, it describes a brooding, a simmering anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. It is seen in the holding of a grudge, in the smoldering bitterness that refuses to forgive. It is the anger that cherishes resentment and does not want reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, no one on the planet can make you angry. Anger is a choice. And sinful anger is is characterized by these sorts of things, where righteous anger is focused on God and the needs of others. Sinful anger, anger is not focused on God at all, but is focused on you and your will, me and my will. At the center of unrighteous anger is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Now, how does this show up in our lives? Well, the easiest one is external anger, right? You pull out in front of somebody, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, right? You're looking them weird, I mean, we're in the South, we still like, oh, I'm sorry, like they can see you. We hope that they do. And yet they will still zoom past us. They'll roll down their windows. They will give us the international sign of hello. They will yell, scream, cuss at us, all these sorts of things, right? It's gotten so bad that people pull over. Again, they get into fights, all of these sorts of things. We External anger. Anybody ever experienced this? It's kind of like an out-of-body experience. You, you look like a great white shark. Your eyes roll back in the white of your head. And, I mean, you are just out of control. You're yelling, screaming, you're throwing stuff. I mean, it even looks out of character as you have become angry and you are using verbal things typically or even physical things in order to destroy either the heart or the physicality of the receiver of your anger. This is, it's external. It's verbal assassination. It's yelling, screaming, insulting, fighting. It's being snappy. It's, it's those digs. It's being overtly sarcastic. Anybody ever gone down that path? That's easy to recognize, right? Because when we see people do that in church, at Walmart, at home, and you get to witness it, have you ever been in an awkward situation 
where somebody loses their mind like that in a public place? Right? Never I. I would never do such a thing. Right? I mean, they look foolish, don't they? And yet we've all done it, but we're quick to judge. We're quick to say, man, they are acting a fool. I mean, everybody done one of these? <laughs> right? I mean, whatever's happening over here, this has nothing to do with me, so I'm going to awkwardly excuse myself from the situation. But there is a good thing about external anger being expressed, even if it's sinful. You know what it is? Is if you do it in public, you're more likely to seek forgiveness. Because you will come to your senses, especially if Christ is inside of you, and you will realize, I just look like an idiot. I just look like a fool. I just looked very immature. And yet God is calling me to maturity. And so we can be quick to do that inside of our marriages, with our kids. We can be snappy with each other. We can be hangry with each other. We can have lack of sleep and anger can swell out of us and come out of our mouths. And yet, if Jesus is inside of us, then we should also be quick to seek forgiveness in that. All of these things take place in external. Paul knows you're going to be angry. It is not going to be removed from your life this side of heaven. The question is, what and how are you and I going to respond once we've done it? Especially eternal, external anger. Some of us in this room are really prone toward external aggression. We are. But then there's another side of that coin. It's not external sinful anger. It's internal anger. This is debatable. This is not thus saith the Lord. This is just my opinion. But I believe that internal anger is possibly more dangerous than external. Have you ever been in conflict with your husband, wife, friend, family member? And typically in every relationship, there is one that is more prone to be external in their fleshing out of situations. And then there happens to be one that is more internal. Right? So the exter external one is more like a microwave. Bing! Popcorn! Right? I mean, you, you can be quick to get there. I, I, I don't know if you guys would guess in Laura and I's relationship which one happens to be more external and more internal. It may surprise you. My wife is actually, for many years, the external one. And my response would a lot of times be to be very silent, which only made the external angry person more angry. So therefore, to get some sort of external response out of me, she didn't care what it was. But to get some sort of response out of me, what did she do? She elevated her ability. She added much more colorful language to her things. Like, you know, you're blue. Okay, y'all are all thinking bad words. Um, she, she just wanted me to respond in some way. She would rather see an external anger come out of me than for me to sit there and be silent. Now, 
we've gotten much better about that. Our friendship has gotten better. Hopefully, by God's grace, we are way more mature than we once were, okay? But when I was the silent guy sitting there, stewing in self-righteousness, as I watched my wife act an external fool, I was marinating in sin. And self-righteousness even saying, well, at least I'm not acting like that. I'm not being like her. If word gets out today, I'll be able to say, I didn't raise my voice. Mm-mm, no, sir. I didn't, I didn't use bathroom words toward my wife. I didn't do this. I mean, she was all red-faced, yelling, screaming, stomping. I just sat there. It's better not to say anything, to say something that you shouldn't say. The person sitting there being silent, guess what? You are just as evil in that moment as the person who is losing their mind. And you will think you are righteous. You will think that you are holy. You will think that you are better than the man or the woman who is yelling to the top of their lungs. And you are not. You are in sin. It is evil. It is demonic. And I would suggest to you, those of us who are more like this person are far worse off. Because you can hide your sin. You can lie about it. See, what happens is, is that when there's internal anger, what begins to build up is, one, is that anger begins to, to, to hold resentment against whoever you're upset about. What is resentment? Resentment is anger held on to. No matter what, this person has hurt me, and so I'm going to hold on to whatever they've said to me, what, however they have hurt me. And again, it is not to lessen the blow of the hurt. Your hurt may be justified, but your response is not. And if you're holding on, you begin to build up resentment toward this person, toward your mama, toward your daddy, toward your kid, toward your husband, toward your wife, toward your coworker, all these sorts of things. And you want to grip it like, you know, Gollum holding on to the ring saying, my precious, that this is of great value to you. And no matter what that person tries to do in making it right, you hold on to it. Oh, it's only a matter of time before they screw up again. I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to put it off, but I've got a little note about so-and-so. I've got a little note about what you did, and I may be going around like everything's okay, but you mess up one more time, and I'm pulling out my notebook. I'm pulling out the file cabinet. 
when there have been people who are, have done wrong, and if they're Christians and they're seeking reconciliation, and people don't seek reconciliation, and I, again, I am sorry for that. We need to pray for God to work in that situation. But if somebody is coming to you and they're, they have externally been angry, lost their minds, and you are pretending like everything is okay just to keep the peace, and yet you've got this little notebook, this filing cabinet that you're going to one day pull out, and you're going to use that against them, I want you to know you're in no better position than the person who has just lost their mind. That resentment, that anger that is held onto, will eventually lead to bitterness. What is bitterness? Is bitterness is resentment that leads to ongoing animosity. This is typically taken when there are issues inside of our relationships, inside of the church, that are not taken care of. We continue to just sweep them under the rug. If you've ever been married before or are currently married, sometimes we can get into this season where we don't address these issues and we just simply say, well, if, if we don't talk about them, then eventually they will disappear. Maybe they never happened. All of this is unrighteous anger. And so this anger builds up. It, it's anger that is held on to in the form of resentment, and then it just becomes bitter, just bitter, just stewing inside of these people. Man, have you ever worked with somebody or had a family member, maybe you're married to them, that they just seem to be bitter and angry all the time? There are many times where I've walked away from people that I've worked with. I can think of one woman in, in particularly where I was just like, I wonder what's happened in this lady's life. Because here's the thing, when you're built up and just have this gut, run, I mean, the marrow of your bones is just calloused over with anger and bitter and resentment. I mean, you're a miserable person living a miserable life, and I want you to know you're making those around you miserable as well. It's just miserable. All because things aren't being taken care of. See, their self-righteousness keeps them blind to their own anger. And again, I'm still talking about the people who are, this can all be happening inside. What a dangerous thing. See, people who are angry, and, and especially if they're angry towards someone else, um, they they. They won't go address the issue and seek healing and reconciliation with that person, but here's what they will do. They will talk to everyone else around you about the problem. You know what we call that? It's called gathering troops. Young married folks, singles, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you some free advice. Conflicts within your marriage, you know whose business it's not? Your parents. It's not their business. If you're having conflict within your marriage, probably some of the, the least likely people that you should go to is your parents. Because at the end of the day, you know what they're going to do? They're going to take sides. At the end of the day, Laura is Larry and Kathy's daughter. Now, there may be some questionable days where they may like me better than her. Actually, a lot of days where they may like me better than her, all right? Her mom is constantly telling me how good-looking I am. She's constantly encouraging me. She keeps telling me I'm her favorite 
all right, all sorts of times. But if we really get into a fight, Mr. Larry's going to come over to the house. Miss Kathy's going to be upset. We've all experienced this. Laura had a granny. She lived in, she was 95. Laura grew up living in that house. And you either knew, based on what Laura had told granny, whether or not I was on the good list or that other list. Right? There's great danger in telling other people about your relational anger and problems when you are unwilling to address the actual person who has caused it. Because you know what it is? It's malice. It's gossip. You are building troops for people to come. See, see, you know, you got to be on my side. Ladies, you got to be careful about this. Especially when you group up. If a lady begins to say something about her husband, you know what your first response should be? Have you talked to your husband about this? Because if you haven't talked to your husband about this, you shouldn't be talking to us about this. Be careful. Be careful of those things. I've seen in all sorts of conflicts that when people really get angry at each other, especially if an internal anger person gets mad at an external anger person, then the, then the fruit of that often becomes, here's, here's the deal, is I'm going to make this person suffer like they've made me suffer. I want to make them feel some pain. I'm going to withhold relationship. I'm going to withhold intimacy. I'm going to withhold forgiveness. If they did this to me, I mean, how many situations have we heard of where a husband or a wife has gone and they've gone outside of the marriage covenant? And so for whatever reason, that seems to free up the other partner to go do that in order to make both of them feel like dirt. I'm going to withhold this. I'm going to withhold that. I'm going to withhold this. I'm going to withhold this. I'm not going to give you forgiveness. I'm not going to give you grace. I'm not going to give you relationship. I'm not going to give you intimacy. We hold our time, talent, and treasure from whoever has hurt us because we want them to pay. And all of that can be happening inside. See, anger becomes an idol. We begin to worship it. Then anger becomes the normal way of life. It is a new normal in your home, in your life, and in your families. And brothers and sisters, if you have kids and you are constantly at each other's throats, married people, you are not creating a sanctuary in your home, but you are creating a miserable, miserable place where often both of you will be blaming the other ones and not me kill you in. You're both guilty. We are both guilty in those things. It's unbiblical anger. It's dangerous. See, who or what we get angry about reveals what we most love. If you become righteous anger, guess who you love? You love God. You love God's people. But in unrighteous anger, guess who it reveals that you love? You love yourself. See, at the center of a lot of anger is that you're upset because you did not get your way. 
You're upset because your schedule got jacked up. You're, you're upset because it, it is all centered on you. My life is not going the way it should. My kids aren't doing the things that they should. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. There's no me time. My marriage is in the rocks. Uh, my job is in the rocks. All these sorts of things. It's me, 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 me. What do you really love? Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller says this, anger is love in motion to deal with a threat to someone or something that we truly care about. Anger is love in motion. And so in that, we can see, man, that there's just, there are things that we need to get angry about, but let's face it, brothers and sisters, like, I don't know about you, but again, looking at my last seven days of my life of how frustrated I have gotten, how angry I have gotten over things that from an eternal perspective really do not matter. They just don't matter. How much anguish would we have or less anguish would we have in our house if we would just live that way? That we would stop being frustrated, stop being angry, stop getting stressed over things that really do not matter. But that we would look at the eternal perspective that God, it is about God, it is about being with Jesus, it is about the gospel, it is about all these things. And that is what we're going to pursue and let a lot of other stuff just go, right? We had a situation in our house this morning, I cannot go into graphic detail, but Cash decided to to cause a lot of problems in his bedroom this morning. And there have been situations where there have been seasons in my life where that would have really made me angry. It would have really been like, man, you need to, woe is me. Woe is me. I can't believe this. It would make me really frustrated and upset as my son, he got sick like all over his room all night long. And so finally, Laura and I, with the help of her parents, I mean, we're just like plugging our nose. We're trying to clean up this room. It is, it is absolutely disgusting. And at one time, Laura and I just looked at each other and said, you got to laugh. Ain't nothing we can do about it. This is life. When early on in our marriage, we've been, been depressed for two days. We wouldn't have been able to go on today. We've been mad, upset. Our lives are terrible. Right? And today it was just like, ah, <laughs> this is disgusting. I mean, literally at seven o'clock this morning, I had the windows open in my son's room and I'm chucking stuff. It's like I'm mad at Laura and out goes her stuff, but it was cash. <laughs> I'm just chucking stuff out the window. Right? It happens. Stuff happens. Problems happen. Traffic gets bad. It rains. Whatever. What do you love? In closing, I want to give you some ways to respond to this. The first thing that we see here is, is directly from this passage. The Bible tells us here, as Paul is talking about anger, he says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your 
anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So the first way in which we need to respond and what it means to be angry and righteous angry and to fight uh, fight against unrighteous anger is this, is do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, when we were first married, I used to think that this meant that Laura and I could not go to sleep until we got ever whatever issue worked out. I don't think that that's a correct interpretation because if you're like me, nothing good comes out of my mouth after 10. Nothing good. All right? When you're sitting there and it's pitch black and you're yelling and screaming at each other, you're butt to butt in the bed, mad as all get out, just yelling, screaming, hurt, or I'm sitting over there just like... Uh, Are you done? (laughs) Sticks and stones break my bones. (laughs) If they only knew how Laura acted. Lord Jesus, help Laura. She's losing her mind, right? All of this is sin on my part. It sounds righteous. It sounds holy. It is from the pits of Satan himself. What, it, what it's saying there is that not everybody can function in the middle of the night yelling and screaming at each other trying to resolve an issue. You know what you need to do? You need to go get in the same bed. Sleep butt to butt. All right? Because sleep covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is take a break. We, need, we, need to, we do need to sleep on this. We have a rule in my house. I do not sleep on the couch. I don't care how mad my wife is at me. I ain't sleeping on the couch. Now, if you're mad enough that you want me on the couch, go hit it. And I mean that with all love and grace. Laura can tell you. She's like, it's, one of the, it's been a plus for us in our marriage. I don't mean that mean, but it's like we both have the adults. We both have to function tomorrow. Sleep on the couch. I'm not going to be able to walk for two days. So in, in the relaxation of sleep, bring some clarity to this moment. What it's saying is, is don't nurse the anger. Don't hold on to it. Don't let resentment begin to be built. Don't let the bitterness begin to, don't nurse it. Don't hold on to it. Don't let it linger for a time. But if you're both claiming to be Christians, you know what both of you should be doing? What happens is relational divide takes place. But if you're both Christians, remember, what are you running toward? You're running towards Jesus, which means this. The relationship has has taken a divide, but then you're running towards Christ. And what does Christ always force you back to? each other. And you know what you do if you've got one person who's making this curve and you've got another person who keeps heading down that way? You, what you have is a Christian and a non-Christian. Because Jesus is always going to drive you back toward reconciliation. You'd be ministers, ambassadors of reconciliation. First, most, we want people to be reconciled to God. Secondly, we're told over and over again, what? Reconcile, reconcile, pursue unity, pursue unity, urge unity, all these sorts of things. Why, though? Because unrepentant, unfelt with, uh, with this anger opens one's life, marriage, family, and church up to more and more sin and possibly demonic activities. 
This is what Paul is saying here when he says don't give the devil a foothold. It's the idea if you've ever been mountain climbing before is you're trying to find a good place to then spring forth to the next thing. And that this is the way that sin, Satan, and death will creep into your relationships. It creeps into the church, and it begins to grow and to foster from there. John Calvin commenting on this passage says, I have no doubt that Paul was warning us to beware lest Satan should take possession of our minds like an enemy-occupied fortress and do whatever he pleases. How dangerous. See, mature believers who understand their identity apart from and with Christ will be slow to anger. But also when we do become angry in sin, we will seek forgiveness. I always shudder, and Pastor Justin will hit on this in a few weeks, but I shudder when I hear Christians say they will not or cannot forgive someone. Is there any more of an unchristlike statement than those very words? In James chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not produce the righteousness of God because it is more concerned with me, myself, and I than it is God. So the first thing that we need to do is we don't need to let the sun go down in our anger. The second thing that we need to do is we need to trust God's sovereignty. Trust God's sovereignty. God is not out to get you. God has not caused people to sin against you. He has allowed it. And if you are in Christ, though, God is going to lose or use even this great real pain and sorrow in your life to do what? To make you more like Jesus. You have to trust God's sovereignty. The third thing is that you need to make sure that you do not seek revenge against the person. According to Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I remember a season in our life where I did something against our marriage covenant. And um, in that, I, I remember one of the greatest effects on me was not the, the, the Laura being upset with me. She was hurt. She had every right to be hurt. Earlier in our marriage, if I ever done this, there was, there was a lot of, again, berating uh, a lot of coming against me, all these sorts of things. But I remember uh, several years ago where I, I, I did something in our marriage I was not supposed to do. She had every right to be angry at me, and she was no less hurt. But in her hurt, extended grace immediately. And I cannot tell you how much more convicting that was than the nagging, berating, yelling, screaming, dirty text messaging, whatever, however you use to function. But that grace has been the reminder ever since that when I'm tempted to that, think about the grace that Laura showed you and you did not deserve it. You deserved punishment. She showed you grace. Do not seek revenge. 
It says in Romans chapter 12, as we were, we're reading this, that vengeance is the Lord's. So in this, we're to respond by not letting the sun go down in our anger. We're number two, we're supposed to trust God's sovereignty. Number three, we do not seek revenge. Number four is that we are to love the person who has done us wrong. In 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Do you think the best of the person who has just really hurt you? That's love. When you can begin to do that by God's grace, that you want to think the best of them, that you want to work with them. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. This is speaking about love. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. See, for many people who are just inwardly or externally angry, the claws of anger, resentment, and bitterness have a chokehold on you. Therefore, it also has a chokehold on everyone that you are around. You've got to love them. And number five, which I believe is the most important, is you and I must preach the gospel to ourselves. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. Look at me. This does not mean that you have not really been hurt. I'm not minimum, 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 not. I'm not listening. There we go. <laughs> You're hurt. That hurt is real. It is okay for you to feel that hurt. What is not okay is for you to respond in sin in response to the hurt. So you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. And, and what do I mean by that? This is the way I've been trying to live my life for several years. Sometimes by God's grace, I'm, I'm, I'm doing better at this. There are other times by my own sinful flesh that I'm really doing terrible by this. But when you can change your perspective to look at it like this, I don't care how bad that you have been hurt by someone. Get this, I don't, I, and some of us in this room have been deeply, deeply, deeply hurt by people, by choices that they made. They have sinned against you, and it is real. I'm, again, I'm not minimizing that at all. But you need to get this this morning. This is what the gospel, when you begin to see it through the lens of the gospel, you need to get this, that none of us have ever, nothing has ever been done to any one of us in here that you have not done to God. And what you have done to God is far worse than what has been done to you. It is far worse. Far worse. We have lessened and, and it has been become acceptable to not think that sin is as wretched as it is. And I don't care what somebody has done to you. What you and I have done to God is far worse. It is character assassination. It is a declaration is I want your throne, God. 
And even if somebody's trying to be really bad to you and they've been really angry towards you, they've been really bad towards you, you know what one thing they don't want? They don't want your life. But every time you and I sin, we're saying we're a better God than God than you are. And so when someone does something despicable to you, I was an abused kid. Not by my own choice, but by someone else's sin. And it wasn't until I became a Christian that I began to understand not only have I been abused, but guess what? I am an abuser. In view of the gospel. See, we can easily look at people at the murderer and go, I can't believe that that person has committed murder. But Jesus, you know what he says in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5? That if you have anger in your heart, you've just murdered someone. See how the gospel changes everything? You've got to begin to preach the gospel to yourself. You've got to begin to preach the gospel. Okay, I'm about to respond here, and this is bad what they've done to me, but when you can immediately go to the framework and look to Jesus in the midst of deep grief, real grief, real hurt, and you, when you can immediately go, but how have I ever responded like this to God? When I think vertically, when I mind Jesus, I'm much more quicker to extend grace to those whom have hurt me. No matter what someone has done, it does not compare to what you and I have done to God. So think about this. God in his wrath, in his righteous wrath, in his righteous anger has every right to, to kill you instantly the first moment that you sin. The first breath in which you take, God has every right. He would be completely just if he wiped off the planet every time a baby was born. Every time you sinned. He would be completely right and completely just in wiping you and I off of the planet. And yet, what does this Jesus do? How does he respond in his wrath? He comes in love and he dies for you. That's righteous anger. I mean, be humbled by that this morning. That is, as he's burning with anger, he responds in death. He lays down his life for his enemies so that they may be welcomed in as his sons and daughters. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of these truths. This is why that we should war against, fight against, that we should be angry. There are things to be angry about, but there are a plethora, millions upon billions of things that you and I and our society get mad at that we should not get mad. But if you do, believer, seek reconciliation. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to be on your knees begging for repentance from God, but also from repentance to whomever you have hurt, whether directly or indirectly. When wrath seems to be the appropriate response, respond 
in personal death. And you and I will be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.